Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you. Welcome to Faith in Focus on the Voice of Islam, a show where we explore topics relating to all spheres of life through the prism of faith. And today, I'm your host, Manazza Chow. Today, we will be exploring the historical background of Islam in Central Asia and discovering who the early Muslims there were and their importance. Central Asia holds a significant part of the famed Silk Road and we'll be pondering over what Islam had to offer the region and what the region contributed to this Muslim world as we know it. We'll touch on architecture and we'll focus on Central Asian personalities, including Imam Bukhari, and we'll delve into key aspects of their lives and their contribution to Islamic knowledge. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guests, Dr. Dometkin Tobaldieva and Ifat Mirza. Dametken holds a PhD in Oriental Studies from Oriental Studies Institute in Kazakhstan and was a visiting fellow at the Asia Research Center in the Observatory at the LSE between 2014 and 2015. Dametken serves as a volunteer on the Russian desk of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community here in London. Assalamu alaikum. If it recently graduated with an MPhil in European and Latin American Comparative Literature and Cultures at the University of Cambridge. She enjoys learning foreign languages and cultural discourse. Assalamu alaikum. May peace assalam. be on you both. And thank you for joining me today. So if to start off with, can you tell us why we should be interested in Central Asia? Um, so it may not be a widely recognized fact, but for um, four to five centuries, Central Asia was actually the intellectual center of the world, and to a far greater extent than we realize as European, Chinese, Indians, or Arabs, we are all heirs to the remarkable intellectual activity in Central Asia that actually peaked in the era of Ibn Sina and Biruni around 1000 CE. Yes, but one thing to note is that neither the beginning nor the end of this great era can be fixed precisely. Some writers suggest that this era began with the Arab conquest, which started in 670 CE or even 750, uh, when the Umayyad Caliphate in Damascus was overwhelmed and established in Baghdad. Okay, so for the benefit of our listeners, when we talk about Central Asia, what exactly does that entail? Fixing the geography, like fixing the time, is another great area. There are both narrow and broad notions of Central Asia. The central region of Asia extends from the Caspian Sea in the west to the border of western China in the east. It is bounded on the north by Russia and on the south by Iran, Afghanistan and China. The narrow notion relates to the five central Asian republics of Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistan. But the broader notion, however, also includes the southern Caucasus, northeastern Iran, northern Afghanistan, western China, Tibet and Mongolia. And I think it's interesting to note that there's such diversity of geography in this area. It truly is a land of contrast. For instance, in the north, there are grass steppes. Then there's a central band of desert. And in the south, irrigated oases and mountains in what is now China's western border. And each zone also represents the ultimate of its type. So research shows some fascinating details. For example, the steppes of Kazakhstan are part of the largest grassland on Earth. The Middle Desert includes the Taklamakan Desert, which is so dry that its sands are said to preserve apple cores for 3,000 years. And the mountain chains in the south incorporate the Pamirs and the Korakoram and the K2 in Kashmir. Yes, so this was a larger area than Western Europe. 
There were three main rivers which were used for transport and irrigated deserts, but large parts were effectively uninhabitable. Yet this area was described as a cauldron of skills, ideas and faiths. It's incredible, really. So what was Central Asia like before the 7th century, before the Arab conquest? So prior to Islam, Zoroastrianism was the core religion of urban Central Asia and the lingua franca, or trade language, of the Silk Road was Sogdian. When reading up on this topic, I found that the region was politically and economically shaped by Eastern Persian-speaking Sogdians, who played a central role in the lucrative transcontinental trade Silk Road. The ancient civilization, Sogdia or Sogdiana, was present in modern-day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and the Sogdian cultural input formed the cornerstone of the Central Asian identity, which persisted long after the demise of Sogdiana in the 8th century. We see that um, Central Asia was already established as an inquiring society, highly literate and also numerate, worldly and self-confident. Prosperity through trade and agriculture created leisure for a fortunate few and for those that they patronised. Many devoted at least part of their freedom to the arts and music or intellectual endeavours in subjects such as astronomy, mathematics and medicine, etc. It's quite pertinent that you've mentioned the intellectual endeavours of the people there, as research indicates that there was indeed a high rate of literacy in the region. And I even came across a letter which was written in 313 BC by a young Central Asian woman who, writing to her husband who she accuses of abandoning her and her son. And we also find in research that before Islam was brought to Central Asia, the people were traders. So a visitor to Samarkand remarked that all inhabitants are brought up to be traders. When a boy reaches the age of five, they begin to teach him to read, and when he is able to read, they make him study business. And another visitor was astonished to find that young Central Asian men weren't allowed to participate in trading trips until the age of 20, up to which time they were expected to be absorbed in study and training. So actually, I think that that is something quite relatable for the younger generations in this country as well as nowadays. Mm -hmm. In terms of religion, during the millennium before the Arab conquest, Central Asians were presented with four or five new systems of faith, and they were as committed to freedom in the religious sphere as they were to commerce, and they accepted change as normal and felt it natural to pick and choose combining elements of different religions. For example, combining um, Zoroastrian eternal flame and the worship of Greek gods all at a single temple in Tajikistan. The most conspicuous feature of the spiritual life in Central Asia was its pluralism and diversity, and this continued for up to four centuries after the arrival of Islam. And I think it's due to this pluralism that conversion proceeded slowly. The British classicist uh, Peter Brown speaks of the Islam resting lightly like a mist over the highly diverse religious landscape. Only in the 11th century did pluralism come to be seen as a threat to the orthodoxy. By this time, the age of enlightenment was already approaching its end. The most commonly accepted end of this age of enlightenment is the Mongol invasion, which Genghis Khan launched in 1219. Also, many developments occurred prior to and after this, but at a different scale. Okay, so going back to the 7th century, Demetkin, how did the Arabs actually manage to conquer Central Asia? 
Because the Arabs Central Asia was largely Iranian, but with a growing Turkic population who spoke a variety of Iranian and Turkic languages, um, its populations were grouped into uh, local kingdoms which fell under the rule of the Persian, or what was known at the time as the Sassanian Empire. And to the Turks who had swept into the age century before the Arabs, the eastern parts of the region were under the protectorate of Tang of China, but both the Turks and the Sasanians were in decline by the 7th century, and the Tang Empire increasingly focused its energies through the east in present-day Xinjiang. Many Turks, Turkic leaders in the heart of Central Asia served comfortably as overlord of their subject kingdoms, enjoying ceremonies of state, but not interfering in commerce or culture. Meanwhile, they had done much to weaken the Sasanian Empire's claim in Central Asia, and we discover in research that on a number of occasions the Turks and Sasanians fought in Central Asia. The Sasanians also suffered significant financial problems that arose from the military campaigns against the Greeks in Constantinople. The Turks, meanwhile, were constantly looking over their shoulder in fear of new threats from the East, but the Tang emperors at that time were preoccupied with the campaign against Tibet. Yes, and from the 3rd to the 8th centuries, the Central Asian kingdoms were functionally independent, with local kings and land aristocrats. But during this time, trade flourished and cities burgeoned. And I believe because of this, confident rulers cut back on expenditure on maintaining fortifications. This relaxed atmosphere was evident in Merv, now Turkmenistan. Whole industrial quarters existed, skilled workers manufactured steel and printed cotton fabric. Muslims entered during this power vacuum. The last Sasanian ruler was Yazegad III, and research shows that Sasanian armies suffered many defeats by the Arabs, united under the banner of Islam during his rule. Ironically, he was not killed by Muslims, rather he was murdered at a place he had sought refuge by, uh, by an assassin, sent by, uh, sent by a Sasanian general who had mentioned against him. Thus, 651 CE marked the end of the Sasanian Empire. By the end of 651 CE, Muslim armies were kept at all the main cities of Khorasan, also known uh, as the land of the rising sun, which incorporated part of modern Afghanistan uh, and Turkmenistan. To put this to, uh, in context of the more well-known timeline of Islamic history, it was in 661, some 10 years later, that the uh, life of Hazrat Ali, the fourth caliph, of Islam was brutally taken. Um, there was a proceeding struggle between those favoring Hazrat Ali's heirs and those who backed another but more distant line of the Holy Prophets, may peace and blessings be upon him, uh, Hashemite clan, uh, clan, the Umayyads, the Umayyads prevailed. The legacy of this is the Sunni Shia split in Islam. So who was it that used to travel in the area? Was it just traders or did others also travel? So uh, travel was extremely well, well established in the area. Nomads in Central Asia were seasonally on the move and the economies of the great cities relied on continental trade. Long distance route to the Middle East, China, India and Europe had been well established for nearly a millennium by the time Caliph Maimon began his library in Baghdad. It's been recorded that from as early as 
the 5th century BC, Central Asians from places like Sordiana and Khwarazm were to be found in the distant Persian capital uh, Persepolis and in Egypt. And mm, no, it wasn't just traders and nomads uh, who travel. Poets, astrologers, uh, savants, musicians, dancers, to name but a few, were all on the move. Dancers from Central Asia are known to have found uh, to have found their way to the Chinese court. Mm, that's very interesting to note. So, following on from that, then, if what was it that impelled thinkers to travel? Um, political insecurity born of changing regimes is a factor for some, such as the famous mathematician and geographer Al-Khwarizmi, born in modern-day Uzbekistan. He moved to Baghdad to the House of Wisdom, where he founded, systemized and named Algebra, um, championed the decimal system, compiled data on the locations of over 2,400 places on Earth, and gave his name to algorithms to name but a few of the incredible contributions to the world that he made. There are some amazing facts to be found when looking into this, including travel details of these scholars. Another very famous scholar, Ibn Sina, though born in Bukhara, was actually sought out by the Ghaznavid Sultan Mahmud after the fall of the Samanid dynasty and lived in Urgench and Ifsahan before then becoming a physician and vizier to the Kakuyid um, ruler of Hamadan. For the benefit of our listeners, Ibn Sina would have moved from what is modern-day Uzbekistan to Iran, and we will go into further depth about his life later in the program. And when the Mongols invaded Central Asia, the Sufi poet Rumi, who was born in either modern-day Tajikistan or Afghanistan, migrated to Khorasan. There are many other factors too. Others travelled for better prospects for research. For example, Imam Bukhari spent years on the road conducting oral interviews for his renowned compendium. And the polymath Biruni also spent years travelling. And how would they sustain their pursuit of information, Tamatkin? So we find that several great thinkers enjoyed private fortunes, but others secured lucrative administrative posts. Most, though, uh, were dependent on the royal court for support. During the reign of Caliph Mamun and a couple of generations after, Baghdad became a magnet for Central Asians. The Central Asians had quickly mastered Arabic as well as Persian. The Barmak family and Abu Musa brothers, wealthy, powerful sponsors, had opened wide their doors to scholars and scientists from the land of origin. A 10th century Arab writer observed, there is not a scientist or poet in Baghdad who does not have a student from Khwarazm. Um, In spite of the number of Arabs in most fields of science and philosophy, the Central Asians are said to have outshone them. Uh, Heinrich Zutter, a German uh, scholar, complied the places of origin of some 515 mathematicians and astronomers uh, during the Islamic Middle Ages, because they chose to write in Arabic, it was easy to imagine that they were Arabs, not Central Asians. Zutter uh, discovered that in his list of high achievers, the overwhelming majority were Central Asians, nearly all of them of Persian ethnicity. I think that is probably quite a wide misconception then, that it was solely Arabs who were at the heart of the golden era of Islam rather than Central Asians. And within the sciences, certain areas attracted the attention of Central Asians at Baghdad. And high up on that list was medicine, and produced Ibn Sina and his canon of medicine. And aside from medicine, Central Asians were to become absolutely preeminent in mathematics and its related disciplines and astronomy. 
A name that I hadn't come across before and found in my in my preparation of this show is Habash al-Marwazi from Merv, who was acknowledged as a pioneer in both mathematics and astronomy. And he was born and educated at the Great Scientific Centre in what is now Turkmenistan. Demetken, what do we know about al-Marwazi and what did he accomplish? Yes, research has shown that he was a scholar who travelled to Baghdad in the entourage of Caliph Mamun in 819. He was the first to describe the trigonometric ratios of sine, cosine, tangent and cotangent. And it was also he who for the first time used an eclipse to devise a means of telling precise time from the altitude of the sun. Over a decade he was a key figure in the uh, team of scientists who developed astronomical tables to calculate planetary positions, eclipses, phases of the moon, and uh, he even calculated the Earth's uh, circumference. Later, Birini and other Central Asian astronomers soon refined these figures to such an extent that their calculations are very close to modern ones. We find that two generations younger than Al-Marwazi was another Central Asian astronomer, Ahmed Al-Farghani, from the Farghana Valley at southeast of Tashkent in Uzbekistan. He became the most widely read Arab astronomer known as Al-Fragnus, even by Christopher Columbus. The careers of Al-Marwazi and Al-Farghani attest to the seminal role of Central Asians in what is frequently identified as Arab mathematics and astronomy in the Abbasid era. But both these men are described as mere planets circulating around the son of Abu Abdullah Muhammad al-Khwarizmi, who I mentioned briefly before, and who, as his name implies, came from Khwarizm, the great expanse of desert and land at the northern border of Central Asia, now the border between Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. Now, the Belgian scholar, George Sarton, who pioneered the history of science, called Khwarizmi the greatest mathematician of the time and one of the greatest of all time. He systemized and named algebra. Yes, we see that the mantle of leadership in philosophy, science and the arts shifted from the Abbasid Caliphs and the capital Baghdad to to Central Asia within a few generations. Nishapur, northeast Iran, was the new capital of Khorasan. It was second only to Baghdad in the Muslim world. And within a century, it had become the literary capital because of one writer, Abul Qasim Firdausi. Um, up to its destruction by the Mongols in 1219, Nishapur remained a preeminent center for religious study, mass, and scientists in general. In the waning days of Nishapur's rule, the Samani family, made up of seven brothers each, became heads of the main cities of Central Asia, including Samarkand, Fergana, Tashkent, and Bukhara. Ismail Samani's power base was in Bukhara, with an estimated population of upwards of many hundreds of thousands. This became the capital of all Central Asia. A Central Asian writer reminiscing wrote that um, Bukhara had been enlightened with the brightness of the light of doctors and jurists and its surroundings embellished with the ra- rarest of high entanglements. In, a, uh, in every age since ancient times, it has been a place of assembly of great savants from every, every land. 
So during the Samanid uh, dynasty in around 940 CE, when Western European writers were writing for a small circle of readers who knew Latin, and most Chinese writers uh, wrote for bureaucrats, a poet at Bukhara, Abu Abdullah Rudaki, was being celebrated for his literary genius of the modern Persian language. And while Bukhara was the political capital, the economic capital of the Samanid state was Samarkand. Traders based there maintained the, the old Sogdian links with China, Byzantium, India and the Middle East. It boasted no fewer than 1,000 shops. Many bookshops offered manuscripts and laboriously copied volumes in many languages. Competition among, uh, amongst booksellers drove down prices and turned dealers into hard-driving salesmen. It is said that the young Ibn Sina decided against buying a book which purported to explain what the rising intellectual considered incomprehensible metaphysics of Aristotle. But when the dealer chased him down the street offering a further price cut, Ibn Sinem relented. This chance uh, purchase turned out to be Farabi's guide to Aristotle's metaphysics. Reading this proved to be a life-changing experience for the aspiring doctor and philosopher. It's amazing. So, <laughs> so I suppose to sum up, under the Sogdian successors, the Western Persian-speaking Samanids, who dominated the region in the 9th and 10th centuries, the cities of Bukhara and Samarkand became world centres for science, art, philosophy and Islamic scholarship. They produced great thinkers of the Middle Ages, including Rudaki, Al-Farabi, Ferdowsi, Al-Biruni and Ibn Sina, as well as Al-Imam Bukhari, the author of one of the, mo- the most authoritative hadith collections. So what more do we know about Ibn Sina, this son of Central Asia? Ibn Sina was what is known as a polymath, i.e. a person whose knowledge spans a number of subjects. He lived from 980 to 1037 and is known in the West as Avicenna. At the age of about 16, Ibn Sina was summoned to the palace of the Sultan of Bukhara to consult the court physicians who had been unsuccessfully treating the ruler. When his advice saved the life of the ruler, Ibn Sina boldly requested permission to use the royal library. The grateful regent gave permission. And Ibn Sina himself describes Bukhara's own storehouse of wisdom in the following words. I was admitted to a building which had many rooms. In each room there were chests of books piled on one on top of the other. In one of the rooms were, were books on the Arabic language and poetry, in another on jurisprudence, and likewise in each room uh, were books on a single science. So I looked through the catalogue of books by the ancients and asked for whichever one I needed. So when I had reached the age of 18, I was finished with all of these sciences. At that time, I had a better memory for learning, but today my knowledge is more mature. He would go on to write 450 works um, covering a broad range of scientific and philosophical subjects. His great volume, Al-Ganun Fi Al-Dib, The Canon of Medicine, became one of the most famous medical works of all time. It presents an overview of the contemporary medical knowledge of the Islamic world, which had been influenced by earlier traditions, including Greco-Roman medicine, Persian medicine, Chinese medicine and Indian medicine. Yes, and it is worth mentioning that the canon of medicine remained a medical authority for centuries. It set the standards for medicine in medieval Europe and the Islamic world and was used as a standard medical textbook through the 18th century in Europe. Now, William Osler, who's um, a famous physician and one of the founders of the renowned John Hopkins Hospital, described the canon as the most famous medical textbook ever written. And he noted that it remained a medical Bible for a longer time than any other work. As with Caliph Maimoun's library in Baghdad, the Bukhara library was a magnet for talent, drawing philosophers and scientists from all across the region. 
Speaking of Bukhara, around this time, an aspiring philosopher was taken to Bukhara and attended a discussion between the city savants. His father wrote, Oh, my son, this is a memorable day, an epochal moment as regards the assembling of talent and the most incomparable scholars of the age. Remember it when I am gone, for I scarcely think that in the lapse of years you will see the likes of these meetings together again. There is so much to learn here, but time now for a short break. Join us after for more discussion on Central Asia and the contribution made by prominent Central Asian Muslims. You are listening to Faith in Focus. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, said, The most acceptable giving of charity in God's sight is which one gives when in good health, seeking wealth, fearing adversity and hoping for prosperity. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to Faith in Focus on Voice of Islam Radio, where today we are discussing Central Asia and Islam. It goes without saying that when talking about the contribution of Central Asians to Islamic knowledge, we have to talk about the science of Hadith. Now, Ifrit, can you introduce the Hadith to us, please? Hadith is an Arabic word, it's plurals ahadith, and the word hadith means a new statement or a statement that is put in a new way. Since the speech of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always contained new and wonderful truths and valuable ideas, it has been termed hadith. Thus, hadith means, firstly, the words actually spoken by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, or secondly, words that describe an observed incident related to the Holy Prophet's life, peace be upon him. The ahadiths were narrated by the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and Muslim narrators. The compilation started about 100 years after Hijra, that is the time of migration of the Prophet to Medina from Mecca, and it continued during a period of about 200 years, i.e. up to about 300 Hijra. There is a large number of books on ahadiths, but six of these are considered very reliable and treated as standard works. These are known as Sihar Sita, the six authentic ones. Of these, five are the works of Central Asians, Bukhari being the preeminent one, while Tirmizi and Muslim from Nishapur were both his protégés. And Al-Imam al-Bukhari, Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari, is one of the most well-known scholars of Islam. Bukhari, as we mentioned before, means from Bukhara in what is now Uzbekistan. Imam Bukhari was an expert in Hadith literature, as Ifrit has explained, and Ahadith are the words or sayings of the Holy Prophet of Islam, may peace be upon him, and Muslims look to the Holy Quran for guidance, followed by the Sunnah, the practices of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, followed by a hadith. The ahadith run into the tens of thousands. And if each variant is counted separately, these would number at least a few hundred thousand preserved in books available today. Each hadith text is an independent text with its own chain of narrators. For example, Ahmad ibn Ishkab narrated to me that, Muhammad ibn Fudail narrated to me, from Umara ibn Kaka, from Abu Zura, from Abu Huraira, may Allah be pleased with him, he said, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings on him, said, there are two statements which the merciful God loves, which are light on the tongue, but which will weigh heavy in the scale of good deeds. 
holy is Allah and worthy of all praise, holy is Allah the Great. Yes, we understand that Imam Bukhari dedicated his life to collecting and analyzing texts like this. He had memorized a great number of them. It said that there are three disciplines connected to a hadith that he excelled in. First, he had an outstanding ability to derive the implications of different ahadiths for different contexts, the name for which is fiqh or Islamic jurisprudence. Second, he had a vast knowledge of the biographies of the people who, whose names appear in such chains of narration and of their reliability and expertise in preserving and transmitting texts. This is the discipline of Rijal, literally men. Third, Imam Bukhari was an expert at identifying any weaknesses in the most reliable transmissions of a hadith. Um, uh, this dis- discipline is known as ilal, literally blemishes. That's really interesting. So what do we know about um, the life of Imam Bukhari? If it- well, starting with his early life, Imam Bukhari was born in the year 194 Hijri, so that's about 810 CE, a year after the death of the Abbasid um, Caliph Harun al-Rashid. Imam Bukhari's father died while he was a child and it's thought that since his father was mentioned in um, Hadith books as a narrator of Hadith, his household was probably a scholarly one. Imam Bukhari had finished his primary education which included memorizing the Holy Quran by the age of 10, some say 7 or 8. At this age he also started memorizing Hadith. He attended sessions of the local Hadith scholar Al-Dakhili. Imam Bukhari had a remarkable memory and soon developed an understanding of the groupings of narrators over time. It is said that once al-Dakhili was narrating hadith from Sufyan, from Abu al-Zubair, from Ibrahim, and the 11-year-old Bukhari interrupted to say that Abu al-Zubair doesn't narrate from Ibrahim. When al-Dakhili checked his text, he found that the narration was from Zubair and not his father Abu al-Zubair. Yes, and to add to that, by the time he was 16, he had also been introduced to fiqh Islamic jurisprudence, but at that time there were many great hadith scholars in different centers of learning across the Islamic world. But a student had to travel if he wished to gather a hadith then available. So at the age of 16, he went for Hajj or the pilgrimage to Mecca, traveling with his mother and brother. After the pilgrimage, he stayed on in Arabia and for the next six years traveled to various cities within the Islamic world, both to collect a hadith of the hadith scholars and teach others the ones he knew. It's amazing. And, and I also found in my re- my reading that Imam Bukhari, who was clearly very gifted from a young age, had, compa- had composed two works by the age of 18. The first was Fatawa al-Sahaba wal-Tabi'een, which is translated to religious dicta of the companions of the Holy Prophet and of their successors, has sadly been lost. But the second, Al-Tariq Al-Kabir, contains brief notices on 3,600 individuals whose names appear in the chains of narrations that precede a hadith. And these notes judge the ability of the narrators to narrate hadith accurately. And this supports many anecdotes of Imam Bukhari's extraordinary memory. So, thinking about it, the six major collections of a hadith contain 30,000 hadith with just under 7,000 narrators in the chain of narration. And 
By the age of 18, Imam Bukhari was already familiar with 3,600 of those 7,000 in total. And that's remarkable. And if I may add that um, typical of the anecdotes of Imam Bukhari's extraordinary memory is an incident from his youth. Um, a leading Hadith scholar, Muhammad ibn Suleiman al-Baygandi, pointed to Imam Bukhari and said that this young man had memorized um, 70,000 Hadiths. When asked to confirm this, Imam Bukhari said that not only had he memorized 70,000 Hadiths, for every Hadith he could also tell him the date of birth of most narrators, the date that they died and where they lived. In addition, he could tell them what passages of the Qur'an or other Hadiths supported each one. What a phenomenal skill. Oh goodness. And in those times, the annual Hajj was the season and occasion for scholars from various parts of the Islamic world to meet each other. And it was common to take six months to over a year to do Hajj, stopping in all cities along the way. Now, this movement helped to gather and exchange and even integrate the knowledge in the Islamic world. And scholars and Hadith scholars in particular would travel m much more widely. So before printing became available, any student would have to copy manuscripts from the teacher's own manuscript. The alternative was to buy a copy from a professional copyist, but even the most careful copyist might make mistakes. So the norm in scholarly circles was that one was not permitted to transmit a book further until one actually heard it from a teacher or read it out in front of him, line by line. Yes, I understand. One of the reasons for this is that names represent a challenge. Arabic names come in five parts. For example, Imam Bukhari is fully identified as first Muhammad, second Ibn Ismail, uh, third Abu Abdullah, fourth Al-Yufi, uh, fifth Al-Bukhari, that is son of, father of, a descendant of a person who accepted Islam in the hands of Al-Yufi, a resident of Bukhara. Imam Bukhari would ask his teachers to identify the people whose names were in the chain of generation. If the teacher seemed reliable, he would record his hadith as he recited them from memory. Otherwise, Imam Bukhari would insist on copying directly from the teacher's written copy. And another example of Imam Bukhari's astonishing memory can be seen on one occasion when he travelled to Baghdad and the scholars decided to test him. So they took a hundred hadith and attached the text of one with the chain of a narration of another. Then ten scholars each presented ten ahadith and asked if he had heard of them. After each, he would say that he hadn't, and then after hearing them all, Imam Bukhari began from the first hadith, recited the wrong version, and then told the audience the correct ahadith. Just incredible. And again, in Samarkand, 400 hadith scholars in the city were unable to confuse him by mixing up texts and chains of narration. Um, Imam Bukhari himself said that he never um, had the need to write down a hadith that he had heard. And he relates that he would hear hadith in one city and write it down in another. Now, a modern day hadith scholar notes that some people may doubt these abilities simply because we are unfamiliar with this type of ability but exceptional ability can be nurtured and trained to extraordinary levels. And he gives an example in our time of the annual Boston Marathon in the US, which has created a city with 20,000 people who are able to get up and run 26 miles in one stretch. Now, those who are unfamiliar with marathons would suspect exaggeration in the numbers. But the written sources of Islamic civilization all place significant value on memory, 
Over centuries, individuals start by memorizing the Holy Quran, and then some scholars, for example in Mauritania, have memorized the whole of Bukhari's Sahih. And in fact, Imam Bukhari is said to be only one of hundreds recorded to have an astonishing memory. Um, after writing the two books at the age of 18, it's thought that he would have uh, started on the Sahih a few years later. He spent 16 years compiling this and completed this at the age of uh, 39. While compiling it, he went to various cities learning and teaching a hadith. He presented the complete Sahih to leading hadith scholars of the day, including, um, sorry, what, Ibn Hanbal? Hanbal. Ibn Hanbal, no, I can't see what is first. Uh, Imam Ahmad uh, Ibn, Ibn Hanbal. Ibn Ahmad Ibn Hanbal, a collector of Ahadis from Merv, Turkmenistan. For the next 25 years, he had taught the Sahih in various cities. A Hadith scholar was held in high regard in society. I can imagine that they certainly were. Now, if it, can you tell us a little about the Sahih? Um, yes, yeah, so very briefly, the Sahih collection has 97 books with many chapters in each. Typically, the chapter titles in uh, Hadith collections simply describe the subject matter. This is often the case in Sahih, but just as often Imam Bukhari uses them in more complex ways. There is a chain of narrations that say that I heard a number of my teachers say that Muhammad ibn Ismail finalized the chapter titles of his Sahih sitting in the area between the grave of the Prophet and the Prophet's pulpit. Before finalizing each chapter title, Imam Bukhari would perform ritual prayers. This is from Ibn Hajar. Muhammad ibn Suleiman ibn Farsi said, I heard Bukhari say, I dreamt I saw the Prophet and it was as if I was standing in front of him, driving flies away from him with a fan in my hand. I asked a dream interpreter about this and he told me that I would drive falsely attributed ahadith away from him. This is what prompted me to write the Sahih. We've covered um, the life of Imam al-Bukhari, and, and which has been absolutely fascinating. But now we can pick up again from the Samanid Empire. The Karahanids entered Bukhara on October 23, 999, filling the vacuum caused by the decline of the Samanids. Can you tell us, Demetken, who exactly were the Karahans? Oh, uh, well, delving into history, we read that hundreds of years earlier, uh, the Karahans and other related Turkic tribes had been pushed out of the Mongolia-China border area and moved west into what is now the central part of China's autonomous province of Xinjiang. Uh, a main branch of the Uyghurs settled there, but the Karahan clans kept moving west and by the mid-800s had reached the eastern fringes of the Samanid state. They were Buddhists, but converted to Islam in the 950s. At one time, there were four Karahanid capitals, the oldest in Kashgar, a second in Samarkand, and two others in present-day Kyrgyzstan. The Karahanids built caravanserais, which means inns for travelers, to foster trade along previously neglected routes, notably Rabati Malik on the road between Bukhara and Samarkand, built in 10 78 by the Karahanid Shah. This was an impressive building with multiple domes and fluted adobe walls, looking more like a country palace than a business hotel. Several architectural historians have judged the massive row of cylindrical pillars that formed the walls to be one of the most imposing structures of the entire Islamic period. We read uh, about long bridges 
with up to 20 graceful arches of baked brick or stone sped traffic along the major roads. And after the Karkhanids, Seljuk rule unleashed an economic boom that dotted the Central Asian countryside with monuments to prosperity that can still be seen today. And Sultan Sanjar built the vast Ribat of Sharaf in Iran on the road between Nishapur and Mev, which featured an impressive portal or pishtak, an immense courtyard defined by high perimeter walls and a maze of interior chambers, each with its own underground cistern, all of which which indicate it was designed to accommodate hundreds of travellers. And a few centuries later, in the autumn of 1219, Chinggis Khan and a force of 150,000 Mongols and their subjects appeared at Otrar, a typical fortress city near the southern border of present-day Kazakhstan. Yes, and after a five-month siege, the Mongols killed the entire population, estimated at 100,000. Over the following three years, this was repeated in most of the major cities of Central Asia. Mongol rule endured for 12 decades, bringing all of Central Asia, Afghanistan and Iran under Mongol rule. Following an initial wave of destruction, they fostered free trade and patronized learning in various fields. The burst of cultural and intellectual activity from Central Asia was released by Timur, a Turco-Mongol ruler who lived from 1336 to 1405. Amir Timur, as he is referred to in the Muslim world, was a conqueror of high stature who founded the Timurid Empire. He was born in what is now known as southern Uzbekistan, a product of a century and a half of intermarriage between Mongols and Turks. In the West, he is known as Tamerlane. His lameness was due to a fall from a horse. Demur was installed as a ruler in Balkh um, in 1370, and he assembled the most highly skilled manpower uh, from many uh, countries and traditions, masters in virtually every field of the arts and crafts. At Demur's court, these artists and artisans had no choice but to interact with one another, which over time led to brilliant syntheses in ceramics, sculptures, painting and glass blowing. Of note is that he made no effort to recruit scientists and scholars, but calling on the combined talents of architects, plasterers, woodcarvers, joiners, as well as manufacturers of baked bricks faced with brilliantly coloured ceramics, Tima ordered the construction of structures that were to become his most lasting legacy. Yes, precisely. With soaring entrance arches, Timur's buildings were dazzling with red domes and ornamenting the exteriors with multicolored tile work. By Timur's calculations, a larger buildings signified greater power. This can be seen when he designed a tomb for his father. Here the main arch reached a breathtaking 151 feet. He went even further with the construction of the Bibi Hanum Mosque in the heart of Samarkand. The Castilian ambassador reported that several times Timur ordered the demolition of completed arches and had them replaced with yet higher or broader ones. So we have come across an article by Srinath Peru, which was published in the Guardian newspaper on March 31st in 2015, and it sheds some light on the character and reign of Timur, focusing on the grand architectural feature called Registan in, the present, in present-day Uzbekistan. Let's listen now to a reading of this piece by Sabah Javed Khan. Temuz Registan, noblest public square in the world. The influence of this ancient Uzbek Grand Square stretches far across the world's cities, from Isfahan in Iran 
to Agra in India, and Russia St. Petersburg. It was on a bright, clear afternoon that I went to the Registan and walked to the centre of the tiled expanse. All around me loomed impossibly ornate portals, patterned minarets and glistening cupolas. The world was suddenly rife with glazed mosaics in liquid shades of blue. The motifs around me would have been impressive enough on a teacup, but in such profusion, and on so massive a scale, they soon had me dizzy. The effect, it seems, was intended. They're part of the legacy of the Turco-Mongol king Temur in his ancient city of Samarkand, located in modern-day Uzbekistan. One of Temur's monuments bears the proverb, If you want to know us, examine our buildings. Centuries later, in 1888, the traveller and future viceroy of India, George Curzon, called the Registan the noblest public square in the world. These buildings, the Registan and other wonders of Timurid Samarkand, were the result of the coming together of craftsmen and builders from across the empire in the late 14th century. Their influence would likewise range far and shape the character of distant cities, the Safavid monuments of Persia and Mughal architecture in what is today Pakistan and India drew inspiration from here, in the Imam Mosque at Isfahan, the Taj Mahal at Agra, and even in the early 20th century mosque at St. Petersburg, traces of the Registan can be seen. It's not hard to see why the author of The 1001 Nights had Shahrazadi spin her tales from a palace in Samarkand. The city was on the Silk Road, alive with people from different lands. It was a wonderland of Islamic architecture and a great centre of learning, but no place in Samarkand represents all three aspects as well as the Registan does. The vast clearing measuring approximately 110 metres by 60 metres was once the main city square, full of markets and lined by caravanserai, roadside inns. Samarkand is at least two and a half millennia old, and for most of those years it occupied a position midway on the network of trade routes connecting Europe and Asia, which accounted for the city's prosperity and cosmopolitanism, also for its tendency to attract invaders and travellers alike. New, durable, glazed and inlaid mosaics allowed more intricate ceramic work, and Temur used them on an unprecedented scale. Alexander passed through in the 4th century BC, the Chinese scholar-travellers Fa Qian and Shan Zong, the Moroccan traveller Ibn Battuta and Marco Polo all wrote about the city. Genghis Khan laid waste to Samarkand in the 13th century. In the 14th century, Daimur rebuilt it into a city the likes which had never been seen before. The Registan of Daimur's time was also the site for royal proclamations, parades and executions. The monuments now seen around the square were built after his death, but they couldn't have been built without him. After Temur made Samarkand his capital, he embarked on a career of military conquest which is estimated to have wiped out 5% of the world's population. Persia, the Caucasus, Delhi, Damascus, Baghdad all fell to him. He returned from his expeditions with architectural inspiration and loot that could finance his appetite for construction. Crucially, he also brought back with him the finest artisans he found. Durable glazes and inlaid mosaics had begun to allow for more intricate ceramic work, 
and Temur had the ambition, resources and workforce to use them on an unprecedented scale. When he was not actually waging war, Temur was building on a war footing. He evicted residents where he fancied a garden or avenue, set ridiculous construction deadlines and interpreted the word deadline far too literally. He had newly built edifices torn down and rebuilt to grander dimensions. He often supervised construction himself and one account has him egging on workers in the foundations by throwing them coins and cooked meat. By the time Thermor died in 1405, his gardens, palaces, mosques and mausoleums defined Samarkand and the style of buildings to follow. The three grand structures around the Rigistan Square are madrasas, Islamic schools. The first of them was built by Temur's grandson, Ulug Beg, starting in 1417. He was an astronomer and mathematician who invited scholars to work and teach at Samarkand, making it the intellectual capital of the region. The portal of Beg's madrasa has a depiction of stars against the sky, not unlike Van Gogh's. He was later to found an observatory and produce the most comprehensive catalogue of stars since Ptolemy from the 2nd century. The two other madrasas in the square, Diliakori and Sherdor, were built in the 17th century to match Biggs, and today this overwhelming triad is perhaps Samarkand's biggest tourist attraction. It's also the venue for the Shark Darunalari, an international festival of traditional music held every other year. George Curzon's lavish praise in 1888 came, despite the square's disrepair at the time. In the decades since, efforts have been made by Soviets and later the Uzbeks to restore the Rigistan to pristine condition. Now, even Tehmur himself might approve. Thank you, Saba, for that most interesting insight into the life and legacy of Timur. Now, we have discussed the history of Central Asia from the times of what is known as the Golden Age of Islam and beyond. Let us now put in context the Central Asian influence on Islam in the current age. For members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Central Asia is actually of particular interest because the ancestors of the founder of the community, His Holiness Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, on whom be peace, travelled to India from Samarkand in Central Asia. The promised Messiah on Hubi peace was a descendant of Haji Barlas, who was the uncle of Amir Timur, who we have been discussing. It is an established fact that Timur belonged to the famous tribe of Barlas, which had lived and ruled in Kish for 200 years, which is an ancient city in Central Asia, now known as Shahrazabz. I believe, Ifat, that you have some more information to enlighten us. Yeah, um, so we read in a book by Imam Abdurrahim Dard, who was an imam of the London Mosque in the 1920s, and the book is titled Life of Ahmed. And if I may quote, the word Berlas also is Iranian and means a brave man of noble stock. Hence, the promised Messiah on whom be peace was originally Iranian by race. A member of the family, Mirza Hadi Beg, came to India from Samarkand with Babur, the first Mughal emperor of India, or perhaps slightly later. He brought with him his followers and servants, the party consisting of about 200 persons. He was treated by Babur with great respect and he selected for settlement a place about 70 miles from Lahore and founded a village on a flat piece of ground below which at a distance of nine miles to the northeast flows the river Bees. The village was named Islampur 
as he belonged to the ruling family, a jagir, meaning property or estate, consisting of several hundred villages, was immediately granted to him by the emperor, and he was also appointed Ghazi, meaning an administrator of civil and criminal law of the surrounding district. The name of the village therefore became Islampur Ghazi, signifying that it was the seat of the Ghazi. Gradually, Islampur was dropped and it was known only as Ghazi. The letter Dad is often popularly pronounced as D, and Gadi in the course of time was converted into the present form Gadian. And it's significant if that the promised Messiah, peace be on him, traced his ancestry back to Samarkand and the melting pot that was Central Asia with significant migration and intermarriage in the wide geographical area that was Central Asia, east from Iran to China in the west. Indeed, uh, we know that the Prophet Messiah on whom be peace wrote in one of the uh, in one of his books, and I quote: "The Sheikh Ibn Al Arabi writes the following in the Fusus Al Hikam about a vision that he had, and that he, the Promised Messiah, is the seal of saints and will be born a twin. A girl will be born with him, and he will be Chinese, meaning his forebears would have lived in Chinese countries. So all these precepts were fulfilled with the intent of Almighty God." I have written that I was born a twin and there was a girl with me and our seniors lived in Samarkand and had ties with China, end quote. This ref- uh, reference is from the Promised Messiah's book, Kitab al-Bariya. The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, also stated in his book titled Izala al-Ham and we were taught this by His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmad, our worldwide head, uh, our caliph or Khalifa in a Friday sermon, and if I may quote, the hadith that is recorded in Abu Daud Sahih is that a person named uh, Haris shall come from Samarkand, uh, who shall strengthen the people of the Prophet, may peace be upon him, and whose help and victory will be binding for each believer. It has been divinely revealed to me that this prophecy and the prophecy about the advent of the Messiah who will be the Imam of Muslims and will be from among them. In fact, these two prophecies are common in their subject matter and this humble person alone is the substantiation of them both." End quote. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Dametkan and Ifat. Although we've barely scratched the surface of this vast, tumultuous and still somewhat mysterious part of the world, we have raced through the history of the area from pre-Islamic times through to the Samanids, a period of enlightenment and scholarship, the Karhanids, the Mongols, up to the time of Timur. We've heard how between the 10th and 16th centuries, Central Asia was one of the most prestigious cultural areas of the entire Muslim world and the intellectual centre of the world. Throughout that history and up to the present, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, Turkmen and other Muslim peoples of Central Asia have developed their own unique understanding and practice of Islam which has shaped their national identity. What we do know is that the Holy Quran directs attention towards science time and again. I quote, In the creation of the heavens and the earth and in the alternation of the night and the day there are indeed signs for men of understanding. That's chapter 3, verses 191 to 192. And again in the Quran, Say, reflect on what is happening in the heavens and the earth. Chapter 10, verse 102. That is to say, study astronomy, geology, biology and archaeology. 
The Holy Quran itself has signified the importance of education by teaching us the prayer, O my Lord, increase me in knowledge. As His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad, the current head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community said in his 2019 historic address at UNESCO headquarters in Paris, I quote, The Holy Quran and the teachings of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, inspired the works of generations of Muslim intellectuals, philosophers and inventors in the Middle Ages. Indeed, if we look back more than a millennium, we see how Muslim scientists and inventors played a fundamental role in advancing knowledge and developing technologies which transformed the world and remain in use today. End quote. And as we have discovered today, most of the leaders in the field were in fact Central Asian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Faith in Focus on the Voice of Islam radio station, produced by Mrs. Shamin Butt. I have been your host, Manaza Chow. Thank you once again to my guests, Dametkin and Ifat and Tisaba. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be on you. <laughs>